Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. Hello, Marcus. Oh, morning. Any morning to all the uh, listeners out there. Yeah, Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR. Good thing on a Saturday morning. For, along with your Wheaties, bit of politics... You did actually go to the uh, Westgate Bridge commemoration, didn't you? I yeah, think. this on Tuesday, October fifteen, I was down at the uh, the forty ninth anniversary of the uh, Westgate catastrophe, which remains uh, Australia's worst industrial disaster. And a good crowd got along to uh, remember the the dead comrades and the the many survivors. And yeah, I filed a report. Can I begin by acknowledging the? traditional owners of the of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This is Aboriginal ground, always was and always will be. Now t- today's, uh, we're, we're inviting Tony Mav, Mav Tony Mav will do. We're having Tony Mav to uh, speak to us and uh, be our guest speaker, but I'll ask anyone if you'd like to put uh, lay the wreaths, if anyone has wreaths that they'd like to lay, now would be the time to do that. We welcome you all here today to the 49th anniversary of the collapse of the Westgate, where 35 men lost their lives in, in the worst industrial accident that we've had in Australia's working history. So we're going to get Tony to give, say a few words. After Tony has spoken, uh, there's a few other things that we want to uh, say about uh, a couple of our brothers who have passed away uh, since the last time that we've met. So, look, I'll hand it over to Tony, and uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Uh, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, which we are meeting here today. I pay my respects to the elders past, present, and the emerging, and the Aboriginal elders of the other communities who may be here today. <coughs> First and foremost, I believe I speak on behalf of everyone here today. I'd like to give my condolences to those who lost family, friends, or workmates here 49 years ago. As we know, what happened here forever in our hearts and minds of construction workers in Melbourne, it is our jobs as representatives of the trade union movement that we make sure that the tragedy that occurred on the 15th of October 1970 is not forgotten. Just quickly, I would like to thank the Westgate Committee, Pat Preston, Danny Gardner, Tommy Watson, David Setka. I'll mention you again, Tommy, Tommy Watson. He wanted me to call him twice and welcome the newest member, Dave Pennell. They're doing a great job. We should all give them a round of applause to the committee. <laughs> Secondly, to the families of the 35 men who lost their lives, we want to know 
that their untimely death was not in vain. After the collapse, the construction industry as a whole was forced to, to, to take a long, hard look at how they managed the health and safety of their workers. The disaster proved to be a turning point in Australia's workplace, eventually leading to introduction of stricter health and safety laws, a stronger role for workers on large infrastructure projects, yet the horror on that day still haunts the survivors and their families to this day. I recently spoke to the newly appointed committee member, David Pennell, who worked on the reconstruction of the bridge. Only 22 years old at the time, he said, he said how working on the bridge was like nothing he had experienced at the time, explaining that this was the first time we had such an emphasis placed on workers' safety. A stark contrast to 18 months before on the initial construction, where the company didn't even bother to employ a full-time safety officer. Later, David would go on and tell me that although safety was featuring higher in the priorities of many of the larger work sites, but on the smaller and more plentiful sites, safety was taken a back seat. Unfortunately, this is still a problem. We are seeing in the industries on this day. Only a week or so ago, we had a first anniversary of a death of a young apprentice boiler maker. Much like the deaths that occurred here four years ago, 49 years ago, his death was preventable. It was a young apprentice, 19 year old, boiler maker, entered a confined space. We've had confined space permits and training and all that since probably early mid 80s. And to see a disaster like that to an apprentice, you can understand how it feels to their work colleagues, their families, etc. And again, that, that death could have been prevented, should have been prevented. The employer knew about it. The, the um, other authorities knew about it and no one did anything about it. And that life could have been prevented. Um, unfortunately, um, it wasn't and we saw a death in the industry. Anyway, getting back to the bridge, the same company that was supposedly tasked with managing the safety of the Westgate Bridge during its construction, continues to operate today and continues to raise eyebrows on how they measure and control safety on site. In 2009, the Westgate Bridge was reconstructed, was going through a strengthening upgrade. Those workers on that project were being exposed to high levels of lead. If it weren't for the unions pushing for higher safety standards, no doubt the company would have not acted on it and probably would have acted on it too late. As we speak, the same company, John Owens, is managing the safety on the Westgate Tunnel Distributor Project. Instead of the lead, as we had in 2009, the concerns are around the handling of asbestos and PFAS, both which are highly carcinogenic. This mismanagement of dangerous materials not only affects workers, but the community at large. And if it weren't for the unions, this matter would not be highlighted and we continue to campaign around that. We, the unions, making make protecting workers from injury and harm our duty and our core business because if it wasn't and if we don't, nobody else will. We can't rely on governments, we can't rely on WorkSafe. We are the only ones that protect workers, unions, the union movement. At a federal level, it is a different story. This grubby federal government are using our taxes to fund bodies such as the ABCC whose only purpose is to obstruct unions from conducting our core business, protecting workers. You know this, we're aware of this, and they still continue to, to distract us, obstruct us, 
and fine us for when we're out there doing the job, our core business on safety. Our position is very clear. Um, we don't care about them. We don't worry about them. We've got to do our job because if we don't, somebody else will get killed on the job. And if that's not enough, the Grubs want to introduce a new bill, the Insuring Integrity Bill. The bill is designed to distract, discredit and obstruct unions and I encourage everybody to read it, understand it, what it really means. Because that's exactly what it means. It's going to distract us, it's going to obstruct us. I ask myself, is this Morris government a fit and proper government for worker safety? I think all of us know the answer here to that question. On average, nationwide, every five minutes, there is a workplace related injury. Following from that, every two days, there is a workplace related death. What is the Morris government doing about this? Pretty sad. Speaking from a metal workers perspective, I know we've got a lot of concerns coming from our boiler makers and welders and the damaging effects of welding. In 2017, a study was released confirming what, ma what many workers have known for years, that the act of welding itself is cancer causing, affecting everything from their skin to kidneys and almost everything in between. Yet here in Australia, we still have issues where we're behind the rest of the world. The use of the inner shield and flux core welding comes to mind. These methods have been almost entirely scrapped around the world due to just how dangerous it is for our operators. We know for a fact that we're not alone in our concerns about safety of our workers. Each industry has its own pressing worries when it comes to the worker safety. And we must act to continue to improve safety in the workplace and in our communities. I also want to mention one thing. Um, we want to commend our state government, the Andrews government. This year, in November, we will have a new law, which we've all been campaigning about for many, many years, as far as I can remember. Industrial manslaughter in this state, and we all should be proud of that. We work so we can live. I'll finish it off with this. We work so we can live. We don't live so we can work. Long live the memories of the 35 lost here 49 years ago, and long live the unions, the only protectors of worker safety. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Tony. We, uh, it's just after 10 to 12, and we'll have a minute silence for the 35 men who lost their lives. I uh, just want to say a few words about uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, in the last 12 months, uh, two people who who come to the Westgate Memorial just about every year since it's been going was Ray Lindholm and uh, Billy Boyle. And unfortunately, Ray passed away in in January this year. And his request was that he have his ashes scattered underneath the Westgate at some part, and that Dorothy's wife will be doing that uh, straight after today's uh, ceremony. Uh, Ray was here on in uh, 1970, and as I said, he'd come to just about out every one of them. And I think the last few re years, he really struggled to come along, but he was still dragged himself along and, and, and made himself known here. Uh, the other one was Bill Boyle. Well, I think we all knew Billy, who we worked with Billy on the Westgate as uh, AMWU shop steward. Bill was a terrific shop steward. Great activist, uh, a, a really good, uh, a really good man who who did his best for workers, where every job that he ever worked at. And I think uh, Billy will be sadly missed. We used to catch up with Bill on a regular basis to see how he was going after he'd finished work. And unfortunately, the last 12 months have been uh, been really bad for him. And uh, 
and, and unfortunately passed away a couple of months ago. Uh, Bill's son Stephen's here. If uh, anyone would like to say g'day to Stephen, I'm pretty sure Steve would have a nice to have a chat here, and I'm pretty sure he'd like to hear some of the stories that uh, Bill got up to. Uh, first, as an activist, and secondly, as a as a, a real character in the building industry. Uh, after today, um, what we will be doing is, as we did last year, uh, everybody's invited down to the Pirates Tavern down at uh, Williamstown uh, for a couple of drinks, tell a few stories, reminisce a bit, and also remember a couple of other things, like uh, when the bridge did start up again, uh, Joe Owens was the 36th man who got killed in the construction of the Westgate, and I think uh, when we talk about today as the 35, there's 36 men lost their lives. And this is a memorial to those men who lost their lives. So whenever you see it, think about the guys who built the bridge and the ones who went to work and never came home. So we'd like to uh, invite you down there. Now next year is our 50th anniversary and we are planning a, a fairly big event like we did on the 40th. And we'll be getting people involved in uh, what we're doing. We're certainly looking at probably doing something down in Williamstown after it and uh, we want to do a few things with that too. So again, people will be quite welcome and uh, you know, there won't be many formal invitations. Uh, it'll be, you're here, you're welcome to come. And the same today, uh, please come down and, uh, and, and share uh, something to eat and, uh, and have a drink with us. So I'll close today's meeting. Oh, just, just a couple of, couple of thank yous again. Uh, thanks to Chris from uh, Vic Roads uh, about organising the uh, clean up of the park here today also cleaning up and opening the car park. Uh, we also want to thank the McLean's guys again. Good job, fellas, as, as always. And, uh, and also Toby from, uh, from Phoenix. Uh, thanks, Toby. He's, uh, he's terrific and he fixed it up for us last year, the traffic management, and again this year. So, yeah, Phoenix travel, uh, traffic management. So thanks again for coming. Uh, hopefully we'll see you all again next year and uh, hope it's like a day like this again just about perfect. So uh, thanks everybody and everybody is welcome to come down to the Pirates Tavern. It's pretty apt calling it the Pirates Tavern because there are a few pirates here. So uh, <laughs> we'll see you down there. <laughs> and we're here at the Westgate Memorial Park and we've just um, commemorated the 49th anniversary of the uh, Westgate catastrophe. Uh, how, how would you describe today's memorial service? Hi. Quite, quite as normal, every year we seem to be getting more people every year, more workers seem to be coming from jobs, and a lot, lot more younger people seem to be coming than it's been the last few years, it's been terrific today, very good. Okay. Obviously a sad day for blokes like yourself who worked on the bridge all those years ago. It's always a sad day and time doesn't change that, I mean time, time, time is time, but you still have memories of uh, things that go on. And as one of the speakers said, it's a reminder why we need to fight for safe workplaces. We've got to make sure, what I hope is, and 30 or 40 years time we're still talking about this disaster because if we're still talking about it we haven't had another one and if we don't want another disaster like this and we don't want this federal government changing laws to make unions weaker and bosses stronger. And at the same time they want to decide who leads unions and I mean, what's that going to do for safety would you say if the government gets their way? Well if union organisers can't get on jobs to talk to members to organise then the first thing that, uh, that, that gets hit is safety. Safe, safety is a, a shortcut for employers to make profits. Yeah, there should be, it should be no, yeah, no shortcuts on safety and uh, got to be the number one priority. I mean, as we saw, the workers all those years ago knew there was something wrong on the bridge and uh, the boss thought he knew better. Yeah, the boss thought he was smarter than everybody else. The, the person who designed the bridge got killed and took 34 people with him. We've just got to make sure it never happens again.
And we're back here at the Westgate Memorial Park and uh, joined by uh, the CFMEU leader, John Setka. And today's a powerful reminder why we need to keep fighting for safe workplaces. Oh, exactly. I mean, uh, my dad is one of the 18 survivors. He's still alive now. And, um, you know, like, like a lot of the uh, older unionists have told me, I mean, this accident actually galvanised unionism in, in Victoria, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, unions are so strong here. I mean, after a tragic accident like this, losing, I mean, this bridge cost 36 lives, you know, and all the 18, you know, went home, you know, went home to their families, and even they were scarred. And it's just a reminder of how fragile it all is, and, you know, and if, unless we keep fighting for workers' rights, and for the right to go to a safe workplace and go home safely to their families, I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, if, if you can't achieve that, then the wages and conditions are really pointless if you're not going to be around to enjoy them. And the federal government's been in hot pursuit of your union for fighting for safety on the job, safety for workers. Yeah, look, uh, they have. They've, uh, they've called us all sorts of names. They've uh, alleged a whole heap of things against us. I mean, coming from the calibre of them sort of people, I take it as a compliment, to be quite honest. But look... They're not going to stop us from fighting. It's uh, intimidation tactics. They reckon we're the ones that intimidate people. We don't intimidate people. We're there to represent people and make sure they go home safe to their families. And, and part of our job is to preserve life. And uh, if they want to have a crack at us for that and criminalise that, well, then they can go their hardest. Yeah, good report, Marcus. You did a good job there. Yeah, thanks, Annie. And uh, the numbers seem to be getting bigger and bigger at each commemoration for the Westgate uh, Memorial. And as uh, Tony Mav, the guest speaker, said in Victoria, we're about to see the introduction of industrial manslaughter laws, and it's about time. It's pretty simple. Uh, kill a worker, go to jail. <laughs> Especially if uh, it's been... Um, uh, the intention, of course, is to ensure that uh, employers actually put the uh, hard yards in to ensure that uh, their workplaces are safe. Well, safety's got to be a non-negotiable on the job, I mean, we don't ever want to see a catastrophe like what happened at Westgate Bridge 49 years ago. From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. Yeah, apparently the big uh, day for the IMARC uh, event is actually the Tuesday where Hugh Morgan, the uh, uh, probably uh, king of uh, climate uh, criminals in Australia, had a long uh, long history of uh, ensuring that uh, he lines his pocket and uh, sneering at the rest of uh, the population as uh, people who uh, don't really understand the issues that are uh, at hand, uh, perhaps uh, you need to go down there to uh, ensure that Hugh gets the message that uh, perhaps he's a bit wrong-headed. Anyway, that's the uh, big uh, gathering that's going to be uh, happening outside uh, the convention centre down there on uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of starting on the 28th of October, not next week but the week after. But this today... 
um, um, on a happier note, down at Brunswick Neighbourhood House, they are going to be hosting two family-friendly events at uh, War Park in Brunswick. It's a day focused on sustainability, urban agriculture and creating edible gardens, sharing skills and knowledge and building community. That's uh, You couldn't uh, think of anything better. So the Waste Not War Park garage sale is part of the Garage Sale Trail Weekend. Happening all across Australia, apparently. We're joining the movement, apparently they are, to encourage people to reduce, reuse and repurpose and to minimise the impact on community. So, uh, and at 1030 they're going to officially launch the War Park Food Forest. There will be a traditional smoking ceremony followed by a working bee uh, and uh, a whole range of other things. So War Park, that's today uh, at Brunswick Neighbourhood House. You were saying, Marcus, that uh, you were on the train and uh, you uh, met some characters who had been working overnight at the, uh, the waste depot that we'd been following uh, yeah, GRS, and we see in the news yesterday that there was yet another fire in Coolaroo. Yeah, at right. At the glass stockpile, and uh, well, thankfully it was brought under control in about half an hour by the uh, MFB firefighters. But um, a if consistent, uh, still uh, are, uh, a prob- uh, deep problem in uh, our landscape, this waste. Oh, it's a deep problem. It's still a deep concern for the people of uh, Broadmeadows, as it has been for a number of years, the amount of toxic chemical fires in that area, particularly this uh, stockpile. And if you have a look at the size of this stockpile, it's a glass stockpile. From the street, it looks like a big mountain, given the, the height, the width, the depth of it. And as Ben Davis said, if a fire does take hold in that stockpile, then it's not going to stop any time soon. So you've got a, a creek on one side of that stockpile. There's houses... Numerous factories, and uh, it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. So, I mean, the EPA assures us they go in there twice a week to monitor the hot spots in the stockpile. But, I mean, the time has come to uh, it has to be cleaned up before we do see another fire. Um, there was a closed door meeting last week. You were saying, uh, yeah, there was, and where the EPA and uh, WorkSafe uh, came and addressed the meeting and. I mean, that was one of the things they gave assurances. They they monitor this particular stockpile for hot spots. And, but, I mean, if you have a look at this stockpile, it looks like a big mountain, but, in fact, it's a, a big pile of glass. And uh, if a fire does take hold, then it, it isn't going to stop any time soon, given the, 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 the fuel that will... You, you don't think you can protect yourself with uh, EPA assurances? No, I don't think we can rely on EPA. I don't think we can rely on WorkSafe. I think the only people who we can rely on is, yeah, getting organised in the community with our unions, uh, with the local associations. And I mean, that's the only way you're going to force change. We we can't sit back and rely on government authorities to uh, to to do things for us. I mean, as we've seen, it's the a, only the it's people. A losing game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and we're, we've been lucky enough to get the second uh, episode of Schools Out. Right here, yeah. right now, is where we draw the line. Right here, right now, right here, Schools right, out. right now, right here, Schools right out. here, right here, right now. Time is running, I'm passing, I'm passing, I'm running. 
more coal, no more oil, keep the carbon in the soil. No more coal, no more oil, keep the carbon in the soil. To be part of the school strike movements, we also need to ask ourselves, are we going to commit to protesting? The way to create change is to create a constant increase in our numbers. Many leaders don't want to make meaningful changes to lessen climate change. Our leaders want us school strikers to get weak and stop protesting. Many thousands of students across the country will go on strike from school, calling for emergency action on climate change. These brave and courageous kids are joining young people around the world who are angry at the failure of governments, including yours, to secure their future from global warming. Will you meet with and listen to these kids who are demanding action from your government to keep coal in the ground? Mr Speaker, climate change is a very real and serious issue which demands the attention of governments. But I'll tell you what we're also committed to. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. We're not, we don't support the idea of kids not going to school to participate in things that can be dealt with outside of school. We do not support our schools being turned into parliaments, Mr Speaker. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. As school strikers, we need to follow our own leaders, like Greta Thunberg to follow on social media the latest news on school strike campaigns, to know what we can do in our areas. Now let's hear an update on what's going on in the school strike movement. Activists who are part of the Extinction Rebellion blocked the streets of Australia's cities over the past week. In Melbourne's CBD, protesters chained themselves together on high-traffic roads and intersections, heavily disrupting people's morning routines. Police had to bring power tools to separate the protesters. In total, 41 people were arrested during this climate strike. 350,000 people went on strike across Australia on the 20th of September, more than double the strikes in March. The Andrews government is in support of school kids attending protests across Victoria. A spokesman for the Victorian government said, We want our kids to be engaged in the world around them, so we don't think it's fair to criticise students for holding a peaceful protest about an issue as important as this. Climate change rallies aim to bring about the change in the grandest of scales. School students and employees went on strike to try and bring about a change in the minds of fellow Australians and, more importantly, in the Government of Australia. If you want to participate in these rallies, we encourage you to find out when and where the closest rally to you is, so you can get involved and make change. In episode 2 of Schools Out, we talk about making personal changes to help prevent global warming. The school-age producers of Schools Out get together to share our vulnerabilities. We ask ourselves, how ready are we to commit to a lower carbon footprint? My name is George. Now let's hear from myself, David and Russell. As young people, we grow up with the example of our parents. How can we change our behaviour to meet the climate crisis? If you think you're right about something, you're going to want to influence other people, which also will include other generations, such as your parents. Which I think is one of the great reasons why these protests are so important because there's so many people changing other people's views. Or thinking about our future. Mm -hmm. To form a collective view that's going to help us in the future. The more people who join that collective, it's it's just an exponential growth. The more people that Mm -hmm. join, the more people are also going to join later. Exactly. It keeps growing and growing. Going on from that, like in terms of how we've grown up, like I've always grown up as a meat eaters. Now we know that the carbon footprint of eating meat and other animal products is quite huge. Yeah. 
that's something that I feel like our parents have definitely well, passed on to us. Especially when you're young, you don't decide what's being cooked for dinner. Yeah. So it's hard to change. I try my best to not eat meat. So find a, a healthy diet that is good for you and good for the environment and getting all the nutrients and stuff that you need. And if our parents aren't doing the same thing we are, it just makes it that much harder to actually maintain a vegetarian or a vegan diet. And that kind of yeah. relates back to what we were talking about, influencing other people. Yeah. So if you influence your family, whoever does the shopping like can go out and pick up those ingredients and you can you know, be a part of that process as well. So it's all easy to fix. Some... Uh, teenagers extremely dedicated to lowering their carbon footprint and they, they want to go full vegan seven days a week, but they're in a family that doesn't want to do that. What are they going to do? That's, That's a, a hard choice. Like, say if you want to work as well so you can have that money to buy that type of food... That's mm. what you desire. That's that's a lot of strain on one person. Uh, if you want to buy like a vegan or vegetarian alternative to meat or something, like that can be expensive. That's, not not yeah, always, but it can expensive. be. Yeah. Changing to going veganism will definitely like impact the environment, and it will definitely make me feel really good about you know doing that sort of thing. What personally do we feel able to lower our carbon footprint? Bike riding. Public transport is so much better for the environment than cars. Catching public transport, which is teenagers. Yeah, is what like we'll primarily do because yeah. not many of us can drive yet and mm. each person having their car has such a massive impact compared to one bus that can carry like 70 people. Yeah. If it was improved, if the PCV system was improved and yeah. then much more people would choose that, in turn that would lower our carbon footprint. There's mm. got to be people that won't drive cars and so they'll be forced to do something about buses and public transport. Yeah. So if everyone knows like how you could live your life a little bit different just to benefit the greater good. It's easier to be prepared for that now than when, like when it gets really bad. feels depressing. They're so ingrained in their ways that they're leading us towards failure and our own extinction. It's Mm. not like that big breath out. (sighs) Mm. If we can't change now, how bad would things need to get for us to change? How long are we going to wait until... Until it shows up on our front door. We can't just wait until it shows up. We have to do something about it before. It's a hard thing to change before the change like around you happens mm. because you're going to be more inclined to do that if it's readily available to you. So making that change is a lot harder. So it has to be like as a whole society. Yeah, it's mm. a social change. It's a big social change. Like bugs. Because bugs are a great source of protein. Probably where the future is going... Because of society's view on bugs, like, oh, that's a little bit icky, you don't really want to have that. I couldn't go down to my local Coles or Woolies and go pick up a uh, <laughs> bag of bugs. Yeah, a bag of bugs. <laughs> I just like sit on the couch and crunch them like popcorn. I couldn't do that because yeah. society's like, nah, that's not, don't really, don't really want yeah, that. That's yuck, man. Yeah, yuck. to be honest, I'm in that boat. I think it's yuck, but it's probably where it's going. And we need to change not only my view and just everyone else's view. And that comes back to what we were saying before about like the climate rallies. By having so many people have the opinion of the right way to move forward, it changes other people's opinions and changes society's mm-hmm. views and gets us moving forward and, and gets the ball rolling and where we should be going in the future. Yeah. Protesting has to be on that mass scale. Yeah. Because no one's going to listen to one guy standing in the middle of Fed Square yelling about how he wants to eat bugs. Yeah. <laughs> but if there's 350,000 people across Australia yeah. yelling that they all want to eat bugs... Yeah. And it doesn't seem so bad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stolen my dreams, my 
They're changing because we're telling them to change. Through the protests, we're giving our own voices and mm. telling them that this is what the people want. The reason they're in government is to enact what we want. Right? Represent so, the people. Yeah, represent the people, exactly. And, and the people have come together and they're telling them what we want and why we want it and how it's good for us. And when we want it, we want it right now, by the year 2030. If they're truly there to represent our views and what we want and they completely ignore us, then why are they in government in the first place? What do you think about us leaving school and going to these climate strikes? Well, I think it's necessary. Uh, it's gotten to the point where they haven't listened to reason, sorry, they being the government and people in the power to make big change. They haven't listened to reason, they haven't looked at the evidence and the facts and all that and said, wow, we really do need to get uh, our arse into gear and actually do something about it. And so that's why I think that it's necessary for us to protest because it's trying to get our views across to them because they're not listening. Mm. What do you think? I mean, we're, we're in our VCE years and... As important as as these climate strikes may be, I've got like a different kind of importance for my schooling. Yeah. Too. Um, and these two next years are so important for my future, right? And and while you could argue, you know, we're not really going to have a future, you know, if, 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 yeah. if we keep up what we're doing now and climate change. That's um, true. Yeah. It's so independent. Your VCE score, my VCE score, mm. is like important to me, but like. So it's like you have to balance these two things where if you can go to the strikes, go. Like, represent the people that can't go. Mm. That's that's what I think it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that goes to show how, like, strong of a message a bunch of school kids leaving school to go to these climate change strikes really is. Because especially in your VCE years, like, that's so important to go into university jobs, future, mm. stuff like that. So to have a bunch of thousands of kids all decide that, like, no, we really need to get out there is, like, really strong of a message when yeah. you think about it like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like I'm in support of, you know, those politicians who disagree with kids going to school. You're more <laughs> inclined to go to school because you're expected at school. Yeah. No one's going to tick off a roster at the rally to see if you rocked up. Mm. But at school, you're expected to be there. Thanks for listening, and thanks to 3CR Radio's Solidarity After Breakfast show for hosting Schools Out. You can contact Schools Out by email at schoolsout3cr at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. We'd like to hear from anyone involved in the school strike movement. We'll be back in two weeks. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. And indeed you are on 3CR with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Anne Davies from Fair Go for Pensioners on the line. G'day Anne, how are you? I'm very well, Annie. Yeah, and it, you wanted to talk about uh, uh, Poverty Week and uh, New Start. Yes, um, 
First of all, I'll just give a little bit of information as just briefly of who we are, who Fair Go for Pensioners is. Go for it. Um, yeah, we're... Um, we're established in 2007 and we're an independent, not-for-profit coalition of community-based organisations comprising of unions, faith groups, peace groups and individuals advocating for social justice for pensioners, single parents and their children and unemployed people. And we're very focused on looking at affordable housing and especially public housing and, and how we can work to advocate and be active, be activist around other low-income groups who are marginalised by financial hardship, poverty and inequality. And we are non-party political. Yes, and so, uh, uh, inequality in Australia is increasing, as we've been right. finding out at the uh, uh, investigations uh, up in um, the Senate inquiry at the moment into uh, Newstart and uh, other related issues. That's exactly right, and I think it's really concerning as we come to the end now of anti of this current anti poverty week, um, and just to look at some of the statistics, um, the very up to date statistics that show that we have more than thirteen point two percent of Australians are living below the poverty line. How much? Say that again. Thirteen point two percent. Okay. Yep. That's that is actually. Um, more than 3 million people, and that includes 739,000 children are part of that uh, cohort below the poverty line. That's more than one in six children and, uh, here if in you Australia. Look at, yeah, and if you look at Australia's uh, population figures, it's a little below 26 million, right? That's right. Yeah, well, that's That's right. So it's very significant and, and, and outrageous that that should be happening at the moment in this country when we do have enough resources that nobody should be living in that kind of poverty. And, and many of that group are in what would be seen as very deep poverty. You know, it's, it's not just maybe one week they're a little bit short, or some, which is still not OK, but are living in, in deep poverty of of um, $135 a week below the poverty line. And the new start payment in Australia is uh, one of the worst unemployment uh, oh. benefits in, in the world, if not the worst. It is really terrible. As we all know from the campaigns that have been running, it has not been increased for more than 25 years. We have a, a huge amount of the community, including business groups, as we've seen, advocating for an increase in new start allowance. Because even if we took out the humanity and the social justice aspect of it, um, when people have a very low income, any extra they get, they spend. They don't have the discretion to think they would save a bit. Uh, so that means that is directly going back into the community and giving a better way of life for a, a lot of members of the community. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you're able, that your group and you as their representative are, is mm. able to argue and put forward quite cogent arguments and uh figures and uh, discussion points around uh, poverty in Australia. And the federal government has decided that it's going to use a uh, idea, a meme, to try and push back the facts 
by saying things like, oh, if you increase New Start, you're going to be putting the money into the hands of drug dealers and alcohol vendors. And that's what they think is an answer to real government. Isn't, isn't that a shame, Job? It's, it's, abs- it's absolutely shameful and it is absolutely not based in any kind of fact. It is just blaming. It is it is uh, keep continuing on with myths about who is unemployed. Um, there's a whole age range and a whole range of people who are living on New Start, or what I should say is trying to exist on New Start. And for example, of over fifty five. There are 183,943 people trying to survive on New Start who are over 55 years and 89,341 who are under 25 years also. And then, of course, there's all of the people in the middle of that, people with disability, Indigenous people, sole parents. Now, for example, sole parents who receive a supporting parent payment, which... uh, is certainly a lot better than New Start, could still be improved. But when their youngest child becomes eight years old, they have to transfer from that payment to New Start. Yeah, so which is really they are actually become, it is creating homelessness, it is creating further entrenched poverty, it is saying to someone that you can leave an eight year old child to get themselves to and from school because you have to conform with these particular requirements and I'm not making that up we hear that one of our um, part of our collective is the council for single mothers and their children and they have distressed uh, sole parents ringing them about what this means for their life and for their children's lives. Well, they like to say this is another mantra that comes out of uh, the LNP government and probably others as well. The best form of welfare is a job. Well, yes, that's if there was a job available. Um, There are more than eight people, I think more than eight, looking for any one maybe available job at any one time. But also... There were nearly a million people living in poverty who relied on wages as their main source of income. This comes from data from the Centre for Future of Work and it shows that in 2017, for the first time, less than half of all people employed were in paid full-time employment Mm, with leave entitlements. So people, they say there's a job or people are working. As we know, too, wage growth has been stagnant. We, haven't, we don't have wage growth. Uh, but people trying to survive on casual work or part-time work where they don't get sick leave entitlements, they don't get holiday entitlements, and they are struggling because they really fall through the gap as well as those who are on um, the welfare payments. The... So a job is not the panacea. A, a proper, um, properly paid job with entitlements will certainly be an advantage, but <laughs> there's not a lot of those around at the moment. Well, for the first time, I think, in Australia's history at the moment, we're tracking at about 50% of the population are working people in insecure, casualised work arrangements, exactly. as, as you said. That's right. 
That's right. So people are working. People are working two, three jobs, very long hours, um, across because they need that. But they're not because they're doing that in different, um, in, in di- with different employers often in different kinds of work. They are not accruing uh, any of any benefits, any entitlements, and they are barely making enough to keep their heads above water. In fact, often they're not. Well, one of the most uh, disturbing things about the way this particular government thinks that it's going to govern, and I'm not sure they actually understand what governing means, uh, is uh, to automate Centrelink uh, and outsource Centrelink uh, responsibilities. Mm. Yes. Uh, And I don't know about you, but um, the, uh, you know, ticking boxes and... uh, uh, the inflexible nature of uh, the uh, arrangements, frameworks that are put in place uh, when you automate. Uh, mm. are, are you finding that people uh, that you are speaking to are having real trouble actually communicating with the uh, powers that be their personal uh, issues? Oh, most definitely, um, because even if people try to ring, as we know that they are put on hold, people give up. People can be sitting for an hour on the phone and not getting anywhere. If they do get through to someone, and when you mentioned about the privatising or the of Centrelink. I think I have spoken about that before with you on this program, that so many now, and, and that an organisation called Circo, which has a very dodgy history, is now responsible for the employment of many people who are now working in Centrelink. And those people uh, do not have adequate training for the issues that they are going to be looking at. As you said, it's become very much tick the box. I mean, I can remember back to when you could actually get an appointment with a social worker at Centrelink. The numbers of social workers have more than halved. There are often for a whole region, now there may be one. Now, it's interesting so, to me that people in general, uh, are they, in general, I suppose people are becoming isolated in their own silos, mm. like they like to call it this. So they don't feel, right. you know, they think that uh, there's nothing to see here and there's no business, the government's got it under control and all the rest of it. But actually, uh, these, uh, they haven't got it under control, basically. They are showing themselves to be incompetent at the, in oh. terms of their duty of care. I agree totally, and I find it quite bewildering that there is not seen to be even any duty of care. I I don't know what they would see as a level of competence, as you said, in duty of care, because I don't think it comes in in, into their words, into their vocabulary, because as said, because they are very quick to as said label to say, oh, we can't increase, as you said before, new start because it'll just get spent on drugs. I mean, they are the most outrageous things to say about people who are an ordinary cross section of our community just struggling to do their best. It's like the old joke, you know. When when did you stop beating your wife? Yes. <laughs> the classic example of begging the question, exactly. That the lawyer asks, "You're damned if you, you're damned whichever way you know, answer yes or no, and you're damned whichever way you do." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And but and I mean the other thing is if we look to what we can do um, to to try and solve and alleviate some of these issues, we Fair Go for Pensioners has been putting for many years our claims and options that we believe governments could do without a lot of effort to make things a lot 
better for people for, to to prevent homelessness, for you know. So looking at current needs of, and future housing, instead of cutting public housing as our state government is now doing, demolishing estates that are being sell, sold off to developers, those estates could have been kept. They could have been refurbished. The people who had their homes there could have stayed there in their homes. They've been moved out into private rental. Another way of further entrenching vulnerability and possibly homelessness. Are you finding that you're increasing your membership over time? Um, we do have some new, new groups coming in, which is very good, and that we're always encouraging. But what... And people have a real will to try and um, and work to helping, you know, lessen vulnerability, improve our society, work towards social justice... But I'm also finding people I talk to are becoming, um, oh, what's the word? Sort of ground down in a way, I suppose. Mm. You know, just finding it very hard to keep that positivity, to keep the optimism. I, I believe we will. And I, and I think the signs of some of the street activities we're seeing, even around climate change with young people, I think that gives hope across a whole range of issues of what we can continue to fight for. And achieve. Thanks for talking to us today, Anne. No worries. And if anybody would like to contact us, um, you can. They can call me um, on o four o nine one nine two double six eight if they'd like to ring up and find out more about us and perhaps you know, look at joining, coming to a meeting. We have our annual meeting coming up in November. We are always happy to have any guests at that meeting. That will be on Wednesday, the 20th of November this year. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus and we've got um, Kevin on the line live. G'day Kev. Yeah, I'm definitely live here, I can assure you. I'm just, 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 just testing my pulse here. Um, worried me a little bit that. Um, I'm just thinking with that last interview, when people say the best form of welfare is a job, I don't know anyone who says that who hasn't got a job, her or himself. And, and generally that job is to say people on welfare 
oh, the best form of welfare is a job, but uh, never mind. As someone was <laughs> yeah. saying, you know, with the Extinction Rebellion, you've got people in cars who are getting angry because someone has been stopped to go going to a job that they can't stand. <laughs> exactly. And just, just before I go on, in a, on a serious note, people of my generation, I think every one of us can remember what we were doing the day the bridge came down, by the way, and it's... Uh, yeah. It's still a tragedy all these years later, yeah. yeah. Okay. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when in a week that was exclusive investigative, great investigative journalism, we can reveal that the US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, told the truth this week. No, no, seriously, that is the truth. He told the truth. After a comprehensive study of trained killer war records, we can reveal exclusively the Kurds did not assist the US of at Normandy. The evidence is irrefutable. We checked and double-checked, didn't lift a bloody finger to use the vernacular to help the greatest capitalist power in the world. Well-spotted Donald. Greatest investigative journalism ever, ever. Thanks to me, me, the world's greatest mind ever, ever. Okay, Donald, thanks. But but it's even worse than the derogation of duty Donald so properly exposed. Our in-depth study also revealed, and Donald is free to use our research, also revealed Kurds took no part in the US of Civil War or the US of War of Independence, let alone the other 168 or whatever countries the US of has been forced to invade, or, sorry, forced to liberate. In other words, long-term refusal to defend liberty freedom and democracy. But now, Donald has explained, his apparent desertion of the Kurdish people in northern Syria, who had done the US OBS train killing to seize Syria from the Syrians, well, the parts of Syria, the US OBS great close, close friend and regional defender of liberty, freedom and democracy, Zion, has not seized and declared part of greater Zion. Apparent desertion was a brilliant tactical manoeuvre to get the Kurds out of the area they had defended and allow his close friend and strong, strong leader Erdo gain more land to gain more land. Thanks to his two IC, Mike Dollars and Pence moving in with a bucket and big mop to clean up the mess. And the brilliant manoeuvre is working a treat as the Syrians and the Russians and quite possibly the IS caliphate, the Kurds throughout, move in. Oh, and more good news. Donald has announced he will host next year's G7 Profit, Profit, Profit Talk Fest at one of his Florida golf resorts, which needs a bit of a financial fillip. Yet, some dissidents immediately suggested the generous offer is likely unconstitutional. For goodness sake, if he's going to host the thing, why miss an opportunity, a, a business opportunity, to make a few dollars out of it as well? Win-win. In an attempt to prove their loyalty after their disloyalty at Normandy et al., Kurds in the US are going all out to have Donald re-elected. We must thank him for bringing our plight to the peoples of the world. And I'm sure Kurds in Turkey would be welcome at the Istanbul Trample the Poor Tower, as long as they've got enough money, or, or no, they could be cleaners and domestics. Back here, as these anarchist climate change, if there is such a thing, disruptions to people going about their lawful business plague us 
Last week, we quoted big supremo scuttled them more less son attacking negative globalism, coercively seeking to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and, worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy, which doesn't apply to the positive globalism of capital zigzagging around the globe in many seconds and true blue Aussie workers having to meet world's best practice. And this week, we'd never accuse the Lord Rupert of whopping sin of hypocrisy as it describes crowds at the grand final parade, for instance, as happy, happy and enjoying the moment and not holding up people going about business as usual or costing the public purse to keep an eye on, because those sort of people don't need to be kept an eye on. But those calling for action on climate change, if there is, protesters clogging streets see the footy mob only protest after the game and then only the losers and Monday the big expose inconvenient truth for climate rebellion three million protest bill bloody irresponsible mob make them pay an insider report on the extraordinary damage caused by the Japanese typhoon but obviously no relationship to climate change if there is because that didn't rate a mention, and Lord Rupert would have mentioned it if it was relevant, and no mention of the cost, billions and billions, caused by the not climate change if there is. Similar to tele-news reports last week denouncing these dreadful protesters marauding the city and confusing the... Sorry, the protectors of law and order, although, as we also mentioned last week, that's not difficult. But then, next um, item, some meteorological disaster, once out of season, although now seasonal, bushfires raging without making any connection between the one and the other. Sadly, the borderless, global, internationalist, bureaucratic negativism continues to impede progress and saw the usual suspect anti-progress forces demanding Oregon Profits Energy at its annual general meeting agree to close True Blue Aussie's biggest black coal-fired power station two years earlier than planned and explain how it lives with the health effects of coal, its fracking in the Northern Territory and its membership of fossil lobby groups. For goodness sake, they've got a right to be in the union. But on the positive side, a couple of corporate proxy advisors representing the big, big shareholders, in other words, important people doing their bit for this society and not disrupting people like themselves going about their normal business, backed the Oregon Profits Board and recommended those they represent vote against these climate change warmest fanatics. The board issued a 21-page reasoning for its rejection of these anti-progress resolutions, although my only query is, why did they need 21 pages when a few simple words would have sufficed, like, we won't close the plant early, reason in one word, profit. The health concerns rebutted responsibly in four words. Couldn't give a proverbial. Concerns over the onomatopoeic fracking, ditto. And the fossil lobby memberships. We have every right to be in a good, good union, unlike the evil unions which give us such grief. That's 18 words, bringing us to a grand total of 27, so not sure why they needed 21 pages. And the word reasoning might be a little inflated, but what another example of how these globally negatives are trying to come between great international corporations and a coal trainload of lovely, lovely money. 
The usual suspects called for the biggest coal mine to be closed in 2030 rather than 2032, a devastatingly unreasonable demand, with Oregon's profits pointing out that would deprive it of two years of answer one. As, like the government, it says, uh, government, it says its coal mining, fracking, health concerns and fossil unions are meeting True Blue Aussie's Paris commitments in a canter which says heaps for those commitments. Plus, on the great level playing field of world's best practice competition policy, good globalisation, Oregon's profits couldn't give arch-rival AG Hell for the Environment a head start, for AG Hell for rejected the same negative unelected mob similar proposal a couple of weeks earlier. And while these young people lead demented older people, I guess like me and maybe even us, uh, team, sorry, on these anti-progress campaigns, if there is such a thing as climate change, then it's not all bad. Just as Oregon's profits and AG Hellfork can see a coal train load of lovely, lovely money to balance any problems that may arise like the end of life as we know it, the outdoor apparel company Catman do put up the prices boasted that extreme weather, hot or cold, meant it sold more put up the prices stuff. The Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax, no longer Falfax daily headlined the excitement. Record profit. Extreme weather proves a boon for Catman do put up the prices. Surely these negative globalism coercively seeking to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy lots should have the grace to look at the positives of climate change, if there is. Bring the sort of balance to the debate the government and the great corporations bring, except our fossil energy mix must have a mix of fossils. While praising government balance, we do have to concede admiration for government when it gets the balance right. As the machinery moves in to begin work on the Ararat Roadworks, part of the reconciliation treaty process with the local Indigenous people, but as they bulldoze that environment, environment back here in White Sacred Site, Melbourne, the same Roads Authority has announced proudly it intends to plant 30,000 new trees as part of the North East Link project without a hint of seeing the irony and okay 16,000 not so sacred trees will be chopped down for that giant freeway many of the oldest trees around but they will collect seeds from the most significant trees I guess the trees are queuing up to be considered significant but there we are balance Perhaps as a gesture of goodwill up Ararat way, they could collect the seeds of sacred First Peoples trees and hand them to the Jawarung people as part of a treaty ceremony. Win-win again. Finally, C-sub wages got sprung underpaying workers. Well, inadvertently underpaying workers, and the Small Business Profits Council argued so many caring employers are being sprung because the awards are too complicated and thereby create this inadvertent rip-off. Uh, sorry, I mean underpayments, inadvertent underpayments, which they all are. Not one sprung caring employer has deliberately underpaid its lazy, avaricious workforce. But as usual, we put to the small business profit slot, how come then it doesn't balance out mathematically as we'd expect and half the inadvertents are overpaying workers, overpayments at this stage sitting at 0%, underpayments 100%. Well, well, it's good news on that one. The, the complication is not that complicated. Phew! 
thank goodness for that. And to think evil unions want to make ripping off, or sorry, inadvertent underpayment, a crime. To quote Greta Thunberg, shame on them. Good morning. Back with Annie and Marcus on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Aisha on the line. Hello, Aisha. You want to talk about what's going on in Kashmir? Would you give us some idea about the background to the Kashmir situation? Yes, I will. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Um, look, since fifth of August, what's happened is um, Indian uh, the Indian government has sort of made a mockery of our constitution. So Kashmir was a princely state, and um, so. But um, when things fired up, and and the king had asked the you know Indian government to help them, so they said, okay, we will help you, but you have to sort of you know um, you have to give us something as well in return. So um, they said that's fine. They said, look, we'll give you a force and to you know to fight the Pakistan army, and but you'll have to we'll manage your 
foreign affairs and communication and security and rest, you can, you know, you're entitled to your own affairs. So we had our own constitution and so that was sort of weighed off and they've just sort of taken over the most militarized um, place in the world. And on 5th of August, so they made a mockery of the Indian constitution. They raised the 370 article. And um, so basically uh, we lost our autonomy. And since then, um, the Kashmiris have been under siege. They've locked up in their homes. They're not allowed to come out. There's no communication. There's no internet. There's no telephone. Nothing at all. So they were not told anything that was going to happen. So they're just like prisoners in their home. And we've got families there. We don't know whether they're alive and whether they need medication or the hospitals. They also, you know, not um, they don't not equipped with a lot of medication. So we don't know what's happening there. It's just terrific. And they're sort of detaining boys as young as um, eight years of age. They've detained uh, academics, um, scholars, you name it, and they've done it, even the leaders. So, they, you know, we just don't know what, what's happening and everything. So we want to make um, the Australian people aware of what the atrocities that Indian government is committing over there. And we're holding a symposium. So this is sort of to create awareness of what's happening there. So it's the fact, like, it's not just um, we're sort of making up a story. So it's been documented by Amnesty International, the human atrocities that are taking place over there, and also the Asia Watch and other human rights, um, you know, organisations. So we just want to create an awareness and then lobby with the government, sort of put pressure on Indian government to sort of, you know, release our people, and this is ridiculous. So that's what we're holding the symposium tonight at from 5 to 7 in Brunswick Town Hall. Brunswick Town Hall, 5 to 7 tonight. Uh, Can you... uh, I mean, I've been aware of uh, the standoff with... uh, in Kashmir against the Indian um, takeover. It's been going on for quite a long time. Can you 70 years. Yeah, 20 years. 70 years. Uh, 70, any, 70. Oh, 70 years. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. 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 Can you give us some idea of uh, who the Kashmiri are, uh, people are and how they see themselves in relation to India? Well, the Kashmiris always wanted um, independence. So, you know... We were never uh, granted the referendum, which we were uh, promised by the UN as well. Um, so um, Kashmiris is the majority of the majority is Muslim, and then we have uh-huh. um, Hindus as well, and we have Sikhs and some Christians as well. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we live very peacefully. We have no problem with each other. Um, in the 90s, actually, um, most of the Hindus were taken out by the Indian government. At night time, they said, look, it's very hard for us to differentiate between the Muslims and, you know, you guys. They're just sort of, but they were taken out of um, Kashmir and um, given them, they gave them refuge in India with, um, like, you know, um, housing, um, uh, schooling for the kids and um, jobs for them as well. So um, they've taken that. But some of them still, you know, live with us and peacefully. And there's a big, huge Sikh community there as well. So, look, there are other six states like us. We had sort of, okay, with Kashmir. Um, so we basically want to be independent and we need a, you know, there's one, there's another part with Pakistan it's called the Azad Kashmir, Free Kashmir. So if we, you know, if we, if they let us be, we just want to be independent. That's it. That's how we were. And um, that would be great. We've been fighting for the last 70 years. So 
So you, so Kashmir is this buffer state between this, these uh, two areas that have been uh, the result of uh, European intervention, in a sense. You know, Pakistan, mm. yeah. uh, India. Uh, I mean, right. it's a sort of false dichotomy, really, isn't it? And, yes, uh, it is. yeah. and also China, too. China, China. has an interest in it as well, you know, right at the top, sort of a mountainous region, but China as well. And so, oh, sorry. Independent. That's what we want to be. We want to, you know. Now, the the reason for why this has come to a head, of course, is that Modi's government, uh, Modi is a a right wing Mm. uh, uh, Hindu. I mean, it sounds quite quite bizarre to us Mm. from the outside, but they have a uh, they are a nationalistic sort of Hindu fascistic approach to. Foreign policy, really, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's what he wants to say. Look, even his, um, uh, I think it was the Home Minister, he sort of said it, you know, outright. And he said, look, basically, we just want everybody to convert. If you want to stay in India, you've got to convert into Hinduism, otherwise, you'll leave. That's the way. And same with uh, Kashmir now, they've already sort of said, we're going to make 50 temples there, and you have to convert to Hinduism. And basically, that's what it is. That's what they want to be. The whole India is, you know, Hindu. It's quite bizarre because India actually has quite a, a, a thousands of years of people rubbing shoulders together in a exactly. sort of amicable way. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Well, it's what they're teaching them, you know. Uh, and so, I mean, they talk about terrorism and everything. I mean, I was just reading this morning a story by, I think, it was one of them, the International, like kids have been taken at the age of nine and they sort of put them in prison. I mean, kids as little as eight or nine. And they've been given sort of, you know, um, I think sedative that just makes them unconscious. And if they scream, they put snakes in the prison. And, you know, it's just bizarre. I mean, you know, then they beat them up. And and uh, it's just ridiculous. Look, I'm just sort of, you know, I have no words to describe it. Um, we're just very upset. And we don't know what our families are going through in Kashmir. We've got no connection. Now, they were saying recently, oh, yeah, the phones are back connected. Hardly. We can hardly get through at all. And not everyone has prepaid as well. Mobiles, just they saying, oh, the prepaid mobiles are connected as well. Nothing at all. Nothing whatsoever. So, uh, so just to... this false impression to the world that, oh, everything's normal, you know. They're getting all these, and I don't know, some sort of, you know, I don't know where they're getting these pictures and everything. They're saying, oh, look, everything's back normal, you know, everything's open, the shops, and now they're saying even the tourists are coming back. Come on. Who are you trying to kid? Why didn't you let the journalists in? The journalists, and no one's allowed in there. Even Amnesty International is not allowed there. Mm. Well, so no one's allowed. Yeah, yeah, Whatever they've got to hide. Yeah, that's a bit of a sign. Um, so just to tell people that uh, they can, to repeat, that the symposium is going to be on tonight. Yes, it is. Symposium at the Brunswick Town Hall between 5 to 7. We'd appreciate if you could attend and sort of, you know, make you aware of what's happening in our country. So there's so many countries at the moment we're all suffering. The world has become an unsafe place. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Aisha. Thank you very much for having us. And we're going to finish Solidarity Breakfast. This is very, that's a very disturbing story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to finish the uh, program with your report on the Metro Trains rally that happened on uh, Thursday. On Thursday at the Flinders Street Station, yeah, the RTBU rally in response to the Metro Trains' failure to negotiate around the new enterprise agreement. And we're here at Flinders Street at the Metro Trains Rally, joined by uh, the Huss, and uh, why are you here today? Um, uh, I'm here here 
to show solidarity with the um, uh, metro train workers, the RTBU union. Um, this worker deserve a better pay. Metro train is making uh, um, uh, a fortune. They're making a lot of money. They have to start paying uh, the workers right and share uh, um, some of the uh, money that they're making. These workers are working hard. They deserve a better pay and a better conditions. It is time for Metro Train to come to the table and start negotiation for a better pay rise for these workers. Uh, why are you here today? Oh, look, we're going to fight for our uh, um, workers' conditions. Uh, this is basically everybody uh, talks about uh, pay increases, uh, how, how it goes through the newspapers and all that. Um, and for we public, uh, you know, that's that's the only reason why we're here. That that's not correct. It's uh, it's due to our working conditions that are going to be changing. That, that we're fighting uh, basically for uh, that more than anything else. And I believe that that's this is why it's important for uh, the Victorian public, the Australian public, to be informed that that, that the working conditions are under threat by all companies around Australia, and to get out there and support us. <laughs> What would your message to Metro be? My message to Metro will be uh, give us what we want and, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be happy. Uh, to support the union, uh, to try to get a fair deal. Um, after all, Metro is saying we're a one team and they're forgetting about the actual people who do the work. And back here at Flinders Street and uh, see other unions showing solidarity and what brings you here today? Uh, it's basically uh, standing by one another. You know, we're all... We all come to work to earn a living, a decent living for a fair day's work and yeah, that's basically all a fair go for all Australian workers and yeah, basically human rights I guess. What would your message to Metro be? Uh, yeah, just think about people before you think about profits. Profits will always be there. I know the bottom line is always counts for them but yeah, people first and profits second so yeah. Back at the rally, what brings you here today? What would your message to Metro be? Uh, don't, uh, don't attack our hard-fought conditions. Just We fought for them for years and years and years. We're not going to give them up without a fight. When workers' rights are under attack, what do we do? When workers' rights are under attack, what do we do? When workers' rights are under attack, what do we do? That's right, comrades. We stand up and fight back. And right now, we're fighting back for transport workers. Who wants to get behind the RTBU? Yeah. All right, can we start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, Wundjeri people, pay our deep respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and those here present. This land was stolen, never ceded, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land, comrades. Now, this is a big battle on our hands. What we want to see is we want to see Metro come to the bargaining table, don't we? Yeah. We want to see Metro pay our workers a fair wage. Yeah. We want to stop Metro taking things away from transport workers. And we want to make sure that the Andrews government gets right behind us to make sure that transport workers get a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. Is that fair enough, comrades? Yeah. All right, well, to kick off today, we have the formidable secretary of the RTBU, Libra Gagorovich. Make her welcome. Thank you very much, comrade. And a big thank you to all the unions that are here today, standing shoulder to shoulder with us. We won't forget it and we'll be there next to you in your next battle, so thank you. This rally today is a show of strength. Together, we're sending a clear, loud message to Metro. 
a message that they'll be hearing all the way back in Hong Kong. This message is that we're not going to be intimidated and we're not going to be bullied into agreeing to a substandard enterprise agreement put forward by a bunch of suits in an ivory tower at the end of Collins Street. Rail, tram and bus union members are determined to get a decent deal and we're in it for the long haul. Comrades, the work that the RTBU members do are the front line of Melbourne's public transport city and are essential to this city. RTBU members are not just employees. They are the rail system. Without you, our trains would not run and Melbourne simply couldn't function. The truth is, the network would grind to a halt. But what do you all think would happen if Metro got sent packing? Do you think there'd be chaos? Exactly. Do you think there'd be carnage? As my good comrade down the front here said, the network would run exactly as it does now because you are the people running it. The RTBU members make this network run. Metro trains, the company, don't add value to our rail system. They simply clip the tickets, they're there to collect the dividends and send their profits back to overseas shareholders. That's why our fight about this enterprise agreement isn't just about wages and conditions, but let's not be cute. We all know that that's bloody important and that's why we're here. Our fight is about the future of the rail network, the future of our city and the future of Melbourne. Melbourne needs a safe rail system, a reliable rail system and one that will actually meet the growing population that we've got before us. We need it to be properly staffed and we need it to be properly, properly maintained. Melbourne needs you. And comrades, you need to be properly paid, you need security at work, you need a safe working environment, and you need the tools to provide a safe service to commuters, and this isn't too much to ask. Now, I know we've all been here before, stuck in an enterprise agreement battle against Metro. God forbid, it was only a few years ago, 2015. We feel, felt then like we were banging our heads against the wall, and I know it's frustrating, and I know that we're feeling the same way now, but I know that we won't give up and the solidarity here today proves that we won't give up. Our union has been fighting for rail workers in this town since 1862 and rail workers have stood shoulder to shoulder with other unions as you have done for us here today. And so again, thank you for your solidarity. These clowns at Metro though, how long have they been here? Not even 10 years. And in those 10 years, what have we seen? We've seen stuff ups. We've seen 10 years of maintenance backlogs. We've seen 10 years of station skipping, 10 years of them trying to reach their KPIs simply so they can get bonuses to again send back overseas. And we've seen 10 years of management's bullshit. Well, guess what? Franchises come, franchises go. But we're here to stay. Railway workers are here to stay. The RTBU is here to stay. And we're going to be in it for the long haul, fighting for a fair enterprise agreement. I say union, you say power, union! Power! Union! Power! I say union, you say power, union! Power! Union! Power! Union! Power! Union! Power! union! Power! That's right, how good was Leader Comrades? Give her another round of applause. Now, this isn't an issue that is just Victorian. No, this issue is important enough that it's captured the national imagination which is why we have Christy Kane all the way from WA coming to this rally to give a big address. He's always been a staunch ally of all transport workers across this nation. He's now the national president of the MUA. Please make him very welcome, Christy Kane.
Thanks very much, Luke, and uh, it's good to be in uh, sunny Melbourne again. And I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. Always is and always will be Aboriginal land. I want to start by using a different concept of why we're here today. I want to take you back to, some of you anyway, the 1998 dispute, the Patrick's dispute on the docks. Most of you in this town, in every union in this town, so most of you in this town, and especially the RTBU, helped the Maritime Union of Australia, along with other unions, to secure Wharfies jobs, permanent jobs. And in that battle, we've seen the unions come together. We've had our D-marks, but we've seen them come together as one. There is no room for unions to be fighting each other when we have a bigger battle that is happening here today with Metro trains. And it is no different, it is no different that what has happened here happened many, many times over the years to destroy workers' wages, to destroy their conditions of employment, to bring in exploited foreign labour, all at the expense of trade unionism, collectivism. We're against casualisation. We're against privatisation and we'll fight and we're against automation because we're not having robots do our work on the trains, on the wharfs, wherever we are, we are going to fight. And so Metro better understand that the new super union of the CFWMEU, and I've got that right, I think, the CFWMEU, from the docks to the mines to the wharfs, to the ships. We stand in solidarity with the RTBU. We will be there in the trenches. And we'll have to leave it there. That was a mighty report. There were a lot of people there, Marcus. Yeah, it was a good turnout in response to, yeah, Metro who's uh, failed to negotiate with the union and their workers over wages and conditions. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot at stake at this for, for those workers, uh, the train drivers, the uh, shifts, the uh, whole range of things that are under, uh, and it's not, as people say, it's not just about money, it's actually about a whole lot of it's things. It's about respect at work. Yeah, about a lot of things. Um, we're going to finish off now. Uh, we've had a pretty busy program. Uh, we uh, started off with uh, the Westgate uh, Bridge Memorial, the 49th. Next year is the 50th. It's going to be a big deal. And there's a film that's being made uh, to commemorate the uh, disaster, which will be ready for next year. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, we then went uh, to uh, Schools Out, their second edition, which is great. It's very nice to have them on board. We went on to Fair Go for Pensioners uh, and Davies. That was a nice and interesting chat. This is the week that was with uh, Kevin live. Uh, a very disturbing story about what's going on in Kashmir. Don't forget that there's going to be a symposium on tonight, 5 to 7, at uh, Brunswick Town Hall. And a great report from uh, Marcus uh, down at uh, Flinders Street with the RBTU who are in negotiations with Metro for uh, an appropriate EBA. Um, got anything else to say? Yeah, I think we should uh, also note the uh, five-year anniversary of Bill Della's passing, passing who uh, Bill Della was, of course, 
the presenter on this program for many years, a 3CR stalwart. Yeah, great man, great man. He was. He, he died uh, 17th of October 2014. That's uh, five years ago now. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been five years. Uh, yeah. He's and missed around the station. He's definitely missed. Uh, we'll go out with uh, West Popular, um, uh George Tellick. Just to remind you that uh, West Palpure is unfinished business. Coming up next is published... Oh, no, sorry. Huh? Asia-Pacific Currents. <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.